episode 433 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. So joining me from the News Roundup are Mark McCarthy, who teaches law at Georgetown Policy and does policy at the Brookings Institution, Jamil Jaffer, who was the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and does a hundred other things as well, Nick Weaver at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur of today's program. I guess we ought to start out with a story that is in part a tech story. Jamil, China had some unprecedented, at least in the last 15 years, protests about COVID in the wake of a fire that looked like it might have killed 10 people because in part they couldn't get out of their their quarantine lockdown. And a lot of uh, people went to protest holding up blank signs. And then the Chinese government came down on them pretty hard. What's the upshot of this? Well, you know, Stuart, I mean, what's really interesting about these protests is that they appear to have been, uh, over time, they, they became more and more coordinated. And we saw was, you know, we've all heard the stories about the Chinese surveillance state and the massive amount of data they collect on people. And certainly they use that data, the facial recognition cameras, uh, cell phone data, WeChat data, device tracking to identify protesters and go to their homes and knock on their doors. But what's really interesting about this Chinese, the vaunted Chinese surveillance state is, a lot of people were able to get videos and information out about the protests, not just Western media, and communicate with one another about what was going on and coordinate these efforts. So the vaunted Great Chinese Firewall and the surveillance state, while after the fact they were able to go to some of these people's houses, you know, is less, I think, less effective than, than some of us thought, at least suppressing some of the abilities to organize and the ability to get data out. And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, VPNs have been utilized for a long time by, by distance and the like in China. We did see a reaction, by the way, from the Chinese Cyberspace Administration, which issued guidance to companies like, not surprisingly, Tencent Holdings, ByteDance, you know, who own TikTok and, and Douyin. And so, you know, this whole claim that, by the way, that, the, the, you know, the Chinese government can't influence TikTok and nobody should be worried about it. Clearly, this is a good example of, yes, admittedly in China, uh, but just clearly wrong. So I I guess I have a different take on this. I My sense is that we hear the story every time that there are protests in China, and we've heard it really since Tiananmen, that people are using this cool new technology to get around the, the police state. And my sense is that every time we write that story and read it, the police state adjusts and tools that were used become ineffective almost immediately. And they last less and less time. For a while, it was, you know, you'd have a month of unrest. This was about a week. And then people discovered that the cops knew they were at these protests and came to visit them. And I'm guessing none of those folks are going to go back. Yeah, look, it's a great point, Stuart. And I do think there's always this cat and mouse game when it comes to, to you know, authoritarian regimes and efforts to avoid and, and work around what they're doing. But let's say this. I mean, the protests were very effective, right? They were, they were big enough to make a difference. And, you know, 
Shanghai, Beijing, they're, they're pulling down the COVID testing facilities. We've seen actual substantive change in policy as a result of this. And so I think you're right. Look, the surveillance state certainly was effective. They did go to these people's houses and the like. There were parts of it, though, that I think were not as effective. I think we have a tendency at times to make China, you know, a, a a 20-foot tall giant, and we they have they have vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities, by the way, that we should exploit and work harder to get access to for folks in China, dissidents and the like, like we should in Iran, like we should in Russia, things that we're not doing effectively in those countries, right? I mean, you know, providing open internet access consistently, we've now got companies, small satellites that can do this, right? We can provide VPN access. Like the more we do this, yes, it'll always be a game of catch-up story. You're absolutely right. But it doesn't mean we should be doing it and pressing hard on those, particularly when their movements are taking advantage of those, of those opportunities and executing them like they are right now in Iran, could be in Russia, but aren't and did over the last few weeks in China. Yeah, I mean, a big difference in, in Iran, it looks like they've, yeah. they've abolished the uh, the morality police. If you That's believe they're attorney general, right? But he did well, say, okay. he, he did say, by the way, that the judiciary is still going to enforce the law. So they're right. not changing the law. So, I mean, you know, maybe may a distinction on a difference, but we'll see. Yeah, I, at least uh, with luck, there won't be those people with sticks out there beating women. Inshallah, right. as they say. Inshallah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Well, so I thought I was really interested in the juxtaposition of this story and a story about how the FBI used and Justice Department used Google's geofence warrants to find everybody who was inside the Capitol during January 6th. And Mark, this was originally a Marcy Wheeler story from Empty Wheel. And, you know, she she's not always right. And she's often, you know, much too long. But in this <laughs> case, she she dug into some filings and said, yeah. we're going to see a, a, a suppression motion that raises all the constitutional issues people have been talking about yeah, in you, context of these. these yeah, um, you bet. Words. I think I think you're right that there's a similarity. I mean, the FBI they asked for and they and they got warrants for searching uh, for cell phones within the the Capitol area during the uh, January 6th riots. Now it started off with about 5,000 uh, requests, and, and they reduced that ultimately to about 1,500. And that that data was used in about a hundred cases, and then. It was actually the, the chief piece of information that led to suspects in about 50 cases. Now, the warrants were served on Google, and they asked for the location history of their cell phones. And this piece of information, it leverages GPS and Wi-Fi and, and Bluetooth. And it's pretty good at pinpointing the location of a phone within a few yards. But as you said, the, the lawyers for one of those arrested, a guy named David Ryan, has, has challenged the, these geofencing warrants. And that's where some of this information is coming from. The lawyers are, are going on, on pretty standard grounds that it was overly broad and, and who it rounded up and that Ryan has a constitutional expectation of privacy in his Google data. Now, some, some lawyers think, eh, that Ryan doesn't have much of a case. This is not like, you know, a geofencing warrant for a bank robbery, which would get, you know, mo most of the people who are totally innocent. The people in this location were probably involved in some kind of criminal activity. And, and so the probable cause argument will probably work in the government's favor here. But the trial court's going to rule on this sometime this month in December. And the expectation is that it's going to go up the chain to higher courts. So we'll get some guidance as to the use of these warrants Google, in the Google, next year. Google, Google has done law enforcement of something of a favor by the way it has structured this 
completely without a legal requirement, but as a way of protecting itself from bad publicity. They give the law enforcement, they ask law enforcement, say, what are the, what's the area you want to know about? And then they'll say, we'll give you records of devices that were inside that, but right. it will be anonymized. And you can look at what the pattern of behavior was, when they were where, and then come back to us and ask us a subset of the devices. Right. And, and as you say, they, they, they went from like 5,700 devices that had been in the area to 1,500 that the government said, we think they were inside the Capitol. And Google said, yeah, at a 68% probability. But there were still people inside, you know, you can say, if you like, well, they were all trespassers, although that would be, you know, that that is the, the criminal charge that's being used against most people. But, you know, even the people who were there, that some of them were first responders, some of them were journalists. So there's a, uh, you know, I, you, you kind of have to say, at what point do you think you have probable cause? Right. Is 1,500 out of 5,700 when the 50, 1,500 really are only two-thirds probable? Is that probable cause? I think it probably is, but I, it's not as clear as you might like. And then, frankly, if it was a bank robbery and you could say there were or best a burglary and you could say there were only 10 people who were in the neighborhood and right. when we narrowed it down there were only two that were really in the house i think that's much more probable cause i mean Stuart, so look i don't i don't disagree with the with the challenges of probable cause in this space and of course there's this whole question about you know where carpenter ultimately leaves us i think you're right you need us you need to establish probable cause but I want to step back to a larger point that you made earlier in the, as you began this conversation, Stuart, which is that this looks a lot like what China is doing. And while I will agree that technologically there may be some elements that are related, right, it is completely ridiculous in my view to compare what we do in the United States under lawful process with a court, with a court reviewing it, subject to you know exposure in the press, discussion by a court, suppression motions and the like, to anything China does where they take the information, all of it, use it and go knock on your door and threaten you and your family and their lives, right? There is no moral equivalence. There's no legal equivalence between those two things. And and when we sort of loosely use this sort of this phraseology, we're like, well, the China thing looks a lot like what the United States does. That is, to me, is completely inaccurate and, and not a good characterization of what's going on here. Yes, the technology may be similar, right? But again, as we just saw in your conversation with, with, with Mark, a much more nuanced approach to using it, much more restrictive. And at the end of the day, a lot of this may very well be suppressed, even if they have to go to the Supreme Court. So not like China at all. Now, I, I, I kind of agree with you, although you have to, you know, the number of people who are willing to rely on the government's checks and balances as protecting them and the notion of probable cause. We're a diminishing band, Jamil. Well, but, that, but that's exactly the point, Stuart. It's because we accept these notional ideas that like, oh, the courts aren't really doing anything about this. Oh, they're all just political anyways. They just vote whether they're, if they're a Republican appointee, then they're conservative. If they're not, then they're liberal. By the way, you will see in this very case, if this goes to the Supreme Court, that is completely wrongheaded, right? This is part of why our entire justice system, the Justice Department, the FBI, the courts, and yes, mistakes have been made, but has been undermined by this very kind of philosophy that like, well, if the Chinese do it and we do it, then it must be the same thing. And if we just say that, then, you know, I, I think that's what's, that's exactly the corrosiveness that's going at why people don't trust these systems. Well, I mean, and, and look, people aren't going to trust. I can jump in. Uh, go ahead, I mean, go I, ahead. I think Stuart, you made a good point before about 
the role of Google here. I do think a lot of the credit for whatever protections are involved at this point really come from the actions of a private sector entity, from, from the company, from Google, who wants to preserve its own user privacy and its own business reputation. And we get to a good result, but it's, it's not the kind of formalized legal protection that you'd like in a system of rule. It's much more informal. And I, I'd look forward to something much more legally based rather than voluntarily. And, and look, we have a system for that. It's called Congress. Right. They can they can make laws. Imagine that in this space. And and then the courts can enforce them. We don't need the courts running around deciding what the policy ought to be and enforcing it like they did in Carpenter. Right. Congress is perfectly capable of doing that. They did it in Title three. They did it in ECPA. They can do it again. If the Congress can't get the votes together, that's on them. Right. Courts should not be stepping in to solve this problem. And frankly, not should private companies. Right. They should follow the law. The courts should enforce the law. And if we need more protections, Congress can go do that. And good luck. Let me, let me, these let me, days, right? No, but but that's but that's but then the answer in our system is not oh well if Congress isn't doing its job, Google should do it for them or the court should do it for them. Then we should elect representatives who do it right, or or we get them out. But we but I think it's crazy for us to say we have this amazing system of governance called you know checks and balances and the tripartite system of government, and then we're just going to ignore it and let Google make the rules and let let the Supreme Court go out there and run around and make policy. That's exactly why we end up in this place in the first place. So that yeah, takes I, me to I, the next I tend step. To agree. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, Mark, I'm, I'm, Mark, I'm going to take this to the next story because I think it's directly related, which is Mozilla and Microsoft and Google saying, oh, there are a bunch of law enforcement tools that we don't like and we're just going to make them unavailable. Uh, at least that's how I read these stories, Nick, from attacking Trustcore to taking out Veriston uh, in Spain to the, well, the, I guess the, the story about the leaked um, app certs is a little different. But what I'm struck by, and maybe you'll have a different take on this, is Mozilla and Microsoft and Google have all yanked TrustCore's root certificate authority. Uh, TrustCore is tied to uh, U.S. contracts. And, you know, the folks at TrustCore said, uh, understandably, we may look suspicious, but we've never been found to have misused our certificate authority. In the case of Veriston in Spain, there's a whole bunch of uh, NSO scandals about attacks on Spanish politicians. But again, it's not clear that Veriston is being misused. So these guys, are, they are going after anybody who makes a spyware tool and I wonder if there aren't some risks that they're going to do that, even where the tool has been used entirely consistent with law. I'm not quite so worried because, first of all, TrustCore should have never gotten a certificate authority issued in the first place. This was correcting a bug because it's the same reason why dropping CNNIC was so important. Because Scenic was the Chinese Internet Authority but, with the but CA. But Scenic got caught. Scenic got caught issuing a certificate to somebody who misused. Uh, it. I don't think Scenic got caught. There was Wusang, which got caught. But Scenic right. was. We just don't trust them, and it shouldn't be as a certificate authority because certificate authority should be trustable by everybody, not just everybody who doesn't have to worry about the U.S. government. Really? The last time I looked, the Hong Kong post office was still in there, but maybe it's maybe they took it out after yeah, the Hong and, Kong fell, but I doubt it. And the the thing is, though, that, that really shouldn't have been there 
in the first place. The spyware vendors, the problem is they've poisoned the well. That four or five years ago, the security researchers were much more circumspect about when you catch spyware vendors and out them because they were specifically worried about the collateral damage to real, real investigations. So for example, when NSO's WhatsApp was discovered, they notified all targets that weren't covered by pen register orders given to WhatsApp. And the problem is, is the industry has just not self-regulated to the point where the companies trust them And so they will out the vendors. In the case of the Spanish company, they were only really outed as a purveyor, not as burning their exploits. There were no exploits burned because it was, as far as they could tell, initially one-day exploits. So they would, when a patch would come out, they'd release an exploit. They may have been using as zero days, we don't know, but since they're patched, that doesn't matter. It's more keeping track of the vendors in that case, that if you are in this business and get caught being in the business, we're going to say the world that you are actually in the business and not allowed to hide behind a front of a benign programming operation. Yeah, I, I, I do think this is this is really narrowing options for law enforcement, which have been greatly narrowed by I don't think so already that I'm willing to bet that the FBI has plenty of vendors willing to sell them tools that are every bit as capable as what NSO does but because they're well targeted and they don't fate share with the uh, Middle Eastern a-holes and the like the tools don't get burned We'll say you're right. Objectively, there have not been a lot of Five Eyes providers who've been outed. Some have been, but maybe that's the case. And, you know, if I think if I worked at the FBI and one of these companies were, was about to burn my, my capabilities, I'd probably go visit them and say, you know, if you do that, you will be facilitating a criminal conspiracy. Just wanted to know you're joining if you take an action. I don't action think that to, would happen. Uh, take this down. And the reason why is A, Um, If the FBI is using tools, they tend to be a lot more circumspect than you'd actually think. But because they're so circumspect, they won't be in the position where they get burnt. That if you don't get on the radar of Bill Marzak and Citizen Lab, you won't get burnt. And the way to not get on that radar is you only buy from vendors that only sell to the FBI and the like. So this trust core thing, the one of the biggest pieces of evidence against them is that they shared ownership or directors with a company, Packet Forensics, that had a contract with NSA. And so no one seemed to think that was a reason to pull back. They seemed to think it was a reason to say, oh, these guys are evil. Well, they were hiding the corporate ownership. That's the thing, that they remember the certificate authority is supposed to be trustworthy by everybody. The CA is... CAs are a different kettle of fish. You don't want to have any real doubt in the CA ecosystem. Oh, come on. LG and Samsung both had their app certificates just compromised. We discovered this in a recent story, but you know, there there are lots of ways to get 
certificates. Right. And a certificate authority that has that happen to them is dead. Oh, really? I I, I didn't see where LG went out of business. No, they aren't a certificate authority for the web. But they are for app certs. App certs on their phones. And that's a different kettle of fish because that is the phone vendor itself who generates and trusts that. And so even if they get burned, they aren't going to revoke themselves. Okay. So let's move on to the UK because they are working through all of the issues about how to regulate speech and content moderation conduct on the web. And recently, after a lot of discussion, and we've talked about it here, that uh, the UK was planning on saying there is certain kinds of speech that is legal but har- so harmful that it won't be allowed on social media. Uh, yeah. It looks like that, that, that's been dropped. Yeah, that, 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 this, they have dropped that stuff. The, the new version of the bill, which is actually being considered in the House of Commons uh, committee starting today, it purges this whole idea of legal but harmful uh, from the bill. But it's it's worth looking back a little bit and reminding ourselves what the bill actually required before these changes. I mean, it did require the Secretary of State to designate certain categories of content that were harmful to adults, and, that, and Parliament had to approve the list and you know any updates to the list. So there was a check on it, and, and harm had to be something connected to physical or psychological harm. And and there were certain things in the fact sheet that sort of said what those things should include, including self-harm and eating disorders and stuff like that. And the old bill said that the the platforms had to assess the risks associated with that content. And the, the companies had to disclose in their terms of service how they treated that kind of content, but it didn't require them to take it down. All they had to do was to say what they were going to do with that kind of content. They could take it down, they could restrict users' access, they could limit the recommendation, or they could say, no, we're going to carry that stuff. But they had to say what they were going to do about that. And and the the accompanying fact sheet said several times, if they want to carry the stuff, they can. And in fact, the bill required the companies, when they did carry that stuff, to have certain user empowerment rules associated with it that would allow individuals to say, no, I don't want to see that stuff. If you carry it, that's fine, but I don't want to be part of that kind of material. Well, even though there was no requirement to take the stuff down, a lot of groups, including some senior conservative officials and a lot of the free speech groups, thought that the very existence of this kind of category you know, a government-defined category of legal but harmful speech was damaging. I mean, the message they felt was clear enough, take the stuff down. The government wants this material limited or removed from social media, even though, because it's legal, it was perfectly okay to put that stuff in other media, such as books or newspapers or magazines. And apparently that was enough to hold the bill up. So they said, okay, we'll get rid of that stuff and all the duties associated with it, and we'll hope that the bill will be able to move forward now. But remember, the bill still has the duties of user empowerment. So the new bill defines certain categories of content as subject to this new duty of uh, user empowerment. And the statute now says if it's about suicide or an eating disorder, if it's uh, content that's abusive and the abuse targets people because of their race, their religion, their sex, their sexual orientation, their disability, or their gender assignment, if it incites hatred against such people, then that's the kind of content 
that social media companies have to allow users to opt out of. And Omicron is given, yeah. given the responsibility to, to give you some examples. Uh, so I, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, I mean, if you're really a free speech absolutist, you probably would be concerned, continue to be concerned about some of that stuff. Well, particularly because the, the bill does require that all the social media platforms enforce their terms of service, right. which is an, a kind of adding an element of government compulsion to what had just been a private set of rules. Now, as I understand this, if you say we don't allow speech that encourages suicide and one of those statements gets by you, you're now in violation of the UK law, not yeah. just well, it's, it's uh, not quite that, that, that It's not quite that explicit. I mean, it's, it's going to be a systems and process approach. But you're right that if the platform says, you know, we don't like racist or homophobic speech or harmful health d- disinformation, then it's got to act to tackle it. And I mean, of course, if they one or two of them slip through, that's not going to be a problem. But if they have no processes or systems in place to deal with that stuff, and they say they're going to deal with that, then that is a violation. And it could be punished by up to 10% a fine of their annual turnover. Uh, so All this right. is no, by no means a bill without teeth, even though the other stuff has been taken, taken out. Uh, I should well, note that there are a couple of elements that, that uh, criminalize content that wasn't uh, criminalized before. Uh, encouragement to commit self-harm is going to be criminalized. And so will revenge porn or, and non-consensual deep fakes and, and down-blousing, which apparently is a major problem these days. Uh, on both oh, sides. as opposed to upskirting. This is <laughs> Down-blousing and upskirting, and they're both gone, right? Daniel okay. Citron, who, whose latest book is about exemptions from Section 230 for revenge porn, she should be yep. delighted. Yeah, I think that the, the whole notion of revenge porn has been sold to us on the assumption that it's obvious what revenge porn is. And immediately upon getting people to agree to that, they started declaring that Hunter Biden's own pictures on his own computer were revenge porn if they were published. So I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a revenge porn skeptic, I have to say. Well, it, it, it may not last. I mean, there's still a, a process of a couple of months where the House of Commons can look at this. These are just go- the UK government proposed changes. And starting today, the House of Commons is going to be, be uh, consider them. They expect the process to be done by, by January. All and right. we, we, may, we may see this bill popping out as, as a full-fledged law in the spring of next year. So we're we're going to go on hiatus in a week or two. So at that point, you know, we can wait for for January and pick this story up. All right. So another story that just got finished, they, they, Circea, which is the law requiring incident reporting from certain high profile and uh, important infrastructure industries, the rule calling for reporting has gone through comment. Comments have been filed now, and it's up to CISA at DHS to write the rules. And uh, we've got some idea what industry, which filed most of the comments, wants from the rulemaking. Jamil, what do you think? Well, look, I mean, it's no surprise that I think industry is pushing back saying, look, we've got a lot of rules that already require us to report. Why not use those reports? You know, we don't want to have to do more reporting. Part of the challenge here, you know, the, the story is headlined how this new law might solve information sharing. I, I will admit to some significant amount of skepticism on that front. My view is all that information sharing mandates do is get the lawyers like you, Stuart, and the recovering lawyers like me in the room to say to our clients, 
hey, look, because you don't have regulatory protection or liability protection, what you ought to do is give them as little as possible, as late as possible. So yes, they get 72 hours, but give them as little as you can. And I think these, these comments are largely consistent with that. They're all saying, hey, you know, we want you to define as narrowly as possible, use existing stuff that we do, right? When the government's point is, we don't get enough, we don't have it, we can't see anything. And my answer to that has always been, mandates are going to make that worse, not better, because it gets the lawyers more involved. What you ought to do is give people regulatory and liability protection, then you'll get information flowing, because now you've aligned incentives the right direction, so I think the article, you know, and, I, and the law, frankly, is is, is wrongheaded. I, I've lost that battle. But I think the responses of, 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 of industry are, are completely predictable. And I think what you'll see, even however CISA defines the rules under Circea, I think what you'll see is industry, every time they get out there, they think they have to report something, go to their lawyers, the lawyers say as little as possible, as late as possible. Yeah, but the lawyers only have seventy-two hours to bill time to the to question, so it won't be it won't be overlawyered. It won't be expensive. It'll just be well. That's exactly the <laughs> yeah. point. It won't be overlawyered. It'll just be do as little as possible, as late as possible. Yeah, I, th- th- maybe so. I I do think it's a legitimate concern to have multiple, especially conflicting or at least uncoordinated yeah. requirements. But CISA ought to have authority, given where they are in the administration at this point, to say, okay, we're gonna. We're actually going to tell some of these other agencies to modify their requirements so they fit with what we are requiring of others so that everybody is filing more or less the same thing. And if they're filing with FERC, they can file with us at the same time. Well, I, I totally agree with that. I think that's exactly right, Stuart. But why not make it even simpler? Why does the CISA just require, or why does Congress require, FERC to hand over whatever it gets to CISA and vice versa and require them to coordinate with one another so they have one standard? I just don't – this whole notion that, like, one entity gets one report and then you have to file the yeah. same thing with somebody else, like, just, this is the federal government. Nice. It should tell itself I agree. Stuff. I, I agree. It should be one form. But if you're going to, if you want to have one form, you've got to have one agency produce it, I'm guessing. You can't have, you can't say, oh, well, the FERC form will do for some and, you know, the FCC form will do for others. My guess is they're going to have to say, this is our form, show it to all the agencies, say, what else do you need? If you don't need anything more, we're going to use this one. Yeah. Of course, that'll be the maximalist position then because everyone will want their piece. We'll have everything in and it'll be the kitchen sink and industry will be like, Okay, we'll give you whatever we can. It'll be the State of the Union address of bureaucratic requirements. Right. All right. Okay, let's talk at least briefly FTX. I'm going to say about Twitter and FTX that the, the, we've covered these stories so much that we only ought to cover what's new. And, and Nick, the only thing I saw new in the stories this week is how the collapse of FTX has impacted AI safety research and the implementation of effective altruism. There was a great story in the New York Times about that that told me a lot about how open philanthropy works. Well, truth be told, SBF used uh, effective altruism as basically an affinity fraud. It was quite effective for him. Just talking about it. So briefly, what is effective altruism? So effective altruism in practice is amazingly close to Yen Buddhism. The Yen Buddhists believe that the money is the root of all evil. Therefore, they will do their karmic balance and take as much of it as possible to save others from the burden. It's a Terry Pratchett reference. That's what. So basically, basically, what you're saying is that effective altruism, as 
practiced in your view is basically people saying, I want to make as much money as possible, as fast as possible, so I can give it away. And the so I can give it away may not actually arrive. Okay. But there are people who are actually giving away money. Like the, the, the open philanthropy thing is people giving away money. I think there are folks who would say effective altruism is about saying, how can I do the most good for the biggest chunk of humanity possible. Uh, And I want to spend my money on that. Except the other problem is on that is so many of the effective altruists don't discount the future. The benefiting X people 10,000 years from now is more important than benefiting slightly less than X today. Okay. Yes. That's a, that's a gross misunderstanding of the world, but I'm sure what they're, which is how they end up worrying about AI safety, which is a small and still remote risk of a giant disaster. And at the same time, they ignore things like AI bias, which people have been having real fun with GPT-3 chatbot showing how AI can have- How you can turn it evil. (laughs) Well, the problem is, is the training data is biased and reflects society and society is unequal. And so you get AIs that do the same thing. And that's what the effective altruism, if they cared about AI, that's what you focus on. But instead, it's the notion of it might go Skynet on us 500 years from now, therefore we need to focus on that today. And that was a lot of what SPF was uh, contributing for. And, and a lot of those a lot of those grants were hundreds of millions of dollars in grants were either promised or made or but maybe not all of them were dispersed and even if they're dispersed in bankruptcy you can go back and, and scoop up anything that was distributed very close to your bankruptcy so a lot of people in 501c3s are kind of asking themselves what they're legal. And if I recall, the window for clawbacks goes up substantially when the underlying business was fraudulent. And the FTX has basically at this point, SBF has admitted that FTX was a fraudulent operation because commingling customer funds with your hedge fund is fraud. And he's admitted that in half a dozen interviews at this point. All right. Jamil, you asked us to put this story on and I agree. It's only slightly cyber related. I I have to drag cyber in. But right now, as we speak over out at uh, the University of Maryland, the the EU and the US are doing trade talks under the uh, trade and tech rubric in which the uh, Europeans are beating the U.S. hammer and tongs for having issued electric vehicle subsidies only for cars that were made in North America. And they're going to say, the Europeans are going to say, that's a violation of the WTO. And it is, isn't it? Look, I, I can't weigh in on whether this violates the WTO. Being a recovering lawyer, right, I don't know the WTO rules well enough to, to weigh in on that. I will say this, though. The Europeans, the reason I, reason I want to point this out is that I want to point out the hypocrisy of, of the Europeans, which I, I love doing, right? And you can never get too much of that. You can never <laughs> get too much European hypocrisy, right? Because at the same time, they're oh so upset about the $7,500 tax credit for EV materials that are produced in the U.S. or a country, by the way, that we have a free trade agreement with. You know, easy to solve this problem if you were just engaged in adult negotiation with us. Put that aside, right? 
they're complaining about that, and they're and they're so they want they want to hijack the entire TTC meeting about this issue, right? Never mind, they're passing things like the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act. They're they're, they're right now enforcing massive fines against American technology companies and beating the beating the living daylights out of American technology companies for alleged GDPR violations. I mean, it's just, it is so laughable that they think they can pass all these laws that are clearly designed to focus on and target American industry and specifically the technology industry. But when we have a $7,500 tax credit, right? It's the end of the earth. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I have no time for this sort of thing. And look, the real thing that we need to be doing with the Europeans is using these TTC conversations to say, look, we have a common enemy in China and you beating us up over $7,500 tax credit and, and us taking on the chin on GDPR and Digital Markets Act and Digital Service Act is ridiculous. We need to collaborate on this stuff and we should be putting penalties on China, not on each other. That to me yeah. is the reason I want to bring the story up. And I just... I just don't get it. I mean, the entire purpose of the TTC was talk about China. Instead, we're just going to snipe at each other about why we can't get this thing right. I, I want to be a little more pointed about that because the biggest W and longest ongoing WTO violation is one we've talked about here, which is the export ban on data to the United States based yes. on the U.S. law, which protects the national security of most European countries. And it is discriminatory It's because they don't chase China over this. It's arbitrary because they don't comply with these requirements themselves. And both of those are requirements of WTO language on data exports. I think the, the U.S. has consistently missed the boat. And it should say, oh, okay, maybe there is a WTO violation here with these subsidies. So when you fix yours, we'll fix ours. Otherwise, just think of ours as kind of partial retaliation for yours. But we're solving, uh, which is, yeah. yeah, but sure, we're solving that problem because we're gonna have a we're gonna have a special data protection court for <laughs> Europeans. I mean, what, first of all, it's so crazy that we're gonna set up a special institution for for these countries and their citizens who literally live in surveillance pervasive environments run by their governments because our government, which protects that data better, is gonna. It's just it's just it's just insanity. But that's so not the problem. The Europeans used to insist on courts for their nationals in China and Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire at least. The Chinese refer to that as a century of humiliation. And maybe someday we'll, we'll, we'll see our setting up special courts just for the Europeans as part of our century of humiliation. Crazy. Okay, Nick, self-restraint is going to be called for again. What happened in the Twitter story that is actually tells us something new this week. Uh, what tells us new is that content moderation decisions are hard and complex, and yet... And Elon Musk consistently misunderstands how hard they are. Yes. And also that basically every decision that Elon Musk can make Twitter a more viable place for advertisers, he does the opposite. So he's literally brought back multiple Nazis and seems very happy with it until the Nazis tweet swastikas <laughs> and shirtless pics of Elon Musk. And then he blocked Yi, but he still has Andrew Eglin of the Daily Stormer, who was kicked off in 2013 for being a rabid Nazi. Weave is brought back because, hey, Elon may not be a Nazi. Apartheid Clyde over there may be whatever, but he does seem a little um, curious at times. And that can't well, be you know, healthy uh, for advertisers. 
look, people who've been brought back have already screwed up and, and, and gotten bounced. Third world countries regularly let everybody, all their political prisoners out and then arrest the ones that screw up again. And social media is pretty close to a third world country. So I'm not, I'm not going to get too hung up on that, but I agree with you. And I, uh, I will say one thing that was not new was the Twitter files that Matt Taibbi wrote about. I don't think he was doing anything wrong in writing about it, but we didn't learn too much. I guess we did learn that the Biden campaign and maybe the Trump campaign were actively asking for suppression of stuff that stories they didn't like and including Hunter Biden. And we didn't, or we already knew that, for example, he and Elon Musk are idiots, but it was a good reminder when they were going, hey, this is a First Amendment violation when 2020, which was the administration at the time. Um, It's clearly not a First Amendment violation. It does say Look, the uh, the incestuous relationship between Silicon Valley and the Obama administration was very real. I think that's uh, that's really what's uh, what the story is. That nobody. I, actually, I, I do want to say what's new here is my new respect for Ro Khanna, who's a very mainstream Democrat representative from Silicon Valley who sent a bunch of private messages into Twitter saying, you guys are crazy. You know, you, you've got no basis for taking this stuff down. You're just going to end up creating a giant mess. And it's a First Amendment problem, or at least a freedom of speech problem. And, and he was he was dead right. And he got no credit for doing that. He didn't seek it. My hat is off to him for volunteering to step into that maelstrom. Okay. Last story uh, before we do some quick hits. San Francisco has approved the use of remote-controlled robots to kill people. And Don't uh, worry. Whole- they're going to use explosives, not guns. Um, yes. I don't understand what SFPD is thinking even asking for this because what they were asking for is the permission to take their bomb disposal robots, which are incidentally very expensive and very deliberately slow, to stick bombs on them to potentially blow someone up in what situation? Well, there has been one situation where where something like that was used for the guy who killed like five cops in Texas, and then he was barricaded, and they sent in a, a, a... basically a bomb disposal robot to, to negotiate with them and then blow them away. And I don't think anybody's really all that upset because he otherwise would have killed more cops. But to my mind, it's odd that SFPD felt the need to ask. It's very odd that the, the one of the most left-wing cities in America would say, oh yeah, what the hell, fine. It, it, maybe it's a change in SF politics on defunding the police, but otherwise, they, look, these aren't even robots. So this is just a question whether this is ever going to turn out to be a good police tactic. And sure, maybe. Uh, so why not be able to use it if it turns out to be a good tactic? I'm sure they're going to use flashbangs more than they're going to use Truth be told, uh, I don't think they're ever going to use it at all. It's just... Yeah. And really, they should have just, this is the kind of case where you ask forgiveness rather than permission anyway, because you're only going to ever use it when you have the barricaded idiot. I think San Francisco may be one of those cities that has a rule that says you, the police can't use technology without the express permission. So they may have said, well, we can't do it. But we have we the technology. It's the bomb disposal robot. We have the technology of the bomb. We just happen to accidentally leave the bomb on the bomb disposal <laughs> robot. Even for San Francisco lefty politics that you ask forgiveness when you need it. 
Yeah. All right. Three or four stories I want to bang through. Meta got fined $275 million for GDPR violations in Ireland because it turned out to be possible to scrape personal data, people's contacts from their profiles, and somebody did. And so, of course, we didn't blame whoever did it because we can't find them. Uh, instead, we blamed Meta and fined them $275 million, as Jamil just was talking about. Okay. And uh, Nick, Edward Snowden got a present last week uh, and had an opportunity to show us where he stands. Yes, he's a proud citizen of the uh, Russian Republic, and he doesn't have to worry about being inducted into the military to go fight in Ukraine because he's already an elite tanky driver of the 1337 Keyboard Brigade. Yeah. Okay. Well, he took the citizenship oath. God knows what he promised to do with Jamil. I mean, does anyone doubt now that Edward Snowden is and always was a traitor not a whistleblower. The vast majority of everything he took had nothing to do with Americans or civil liberties. He's lived in Moscow his entire time. His girlfriend's there now, and now he's finally admitted it. He's taking the Russian citizenship. He's doing it up. Passport. By the way, while the war's happening in Ukraine, yeah. like, yeah. can anyone doubt now? Will, who's going to defend Edward Snowden now? Because I know there's a lot of you out there. I will who's defend, defend him now. that yeah. he thought himself a patriot at the time. But very quickly, it changed when he got to Moscow. Well, I'll take that, before. but can I just ask one question about that? Why was he taking all the other the other terabytes and terabytes of data that had nothing to do with Americans and civil liberties, but were about technological programs that were targeted at foreign adversaries, had no collection of Americans' data? Why did he take that data and why did he because release it? Because, A, he felt that protections do not just apply to U.S. persons, and B, he did not release the raw data, that he forwarded it only to reporters. Barton Gelman, who's a good reporter, Glenn Greenwald, who turned out to be a chimp with a chain gun, and I will be so glad when he screws up and the Brazilians arrest him for something. Okay, so this was it. This was a quick hit. We have taken our quick hit. Jamil, TSMC, their Arizona operation is announcing that they're going to be actually making more advanced chips than they originally proposed. But it sounds to me as though they're running into a few more problems than they expected to. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Look, we very rarely get a chance to laud Apple on this podcast, and, and me in particular, because I have a lot of thoughts. But look, this is a great example. Apple doing the one thing we asked, we told them they, sh they needed to do, which is if you want to move manufacturing out of Taiwan, you know, and the threats of China, you can move it to the U.S. If you put pressure on TSMC, they've done that apparently. And TSMC is now in 2024 when they open that first fab in Arizona. It's going to be making four nanometer chips instead of five. Of course, state of the art by then will probably be past three nanometer. But their plan is to do three nanometer at the adjoining facility when that one opens after that one. And so this is actually a good thing for the United States. Yes, there are challenges. And one of the biggest things, Stuart, is going to be, do we have the capacity here and the the scientific base and the engineering base to make those here without completely relying on engineers and folks back in Taiwan? And the answer to that, Stuart, look, Part of it is, yes, we've got to get our, our workforce up and running and do a much better job of that. That's going to take a while. The correct answer to that, and I'm going to say it, and people are going to hate me for it, we need better immigration in this country. We need to take highly qualified people, stop training them our PhD programs, and sending them back to China to build their companies or anywhere else in the world, keep them here, make them Americans. It is what has made this country great over the 200 years we've been, we've been a nation. It is what can continue to make us great if we stopped being xenophobic and take in folks, make them part of the American dream and build here. 
That's so the bottom line. Marco Rubio is right back in the day when he cut that deal. We need more stuff like that, not the current place where both our two parties are completely at, at odds and wrong about this across the board. I agree that we need more well-educated immigrants and don't think we need more indentured servants at Microsoft and Google uh, and other com- uh, companies that benefit from the uh, current program where you only can work for one company if they bring you in. And we're actually, you know, we're not bad as a place to start work when you come out of college. There's an OPT program that lets people uh, work for 18 months after they graduate. So there's nobody going home because they've been kicked out. And and those folks can get B-1 visas to last a long time, but they'll have to work for one company. And that's not a great outcome. But the fight over immigration is about whether people should just be able to walk across the border and say, okay, I'm here, you know, give me a job and a court date five years from now. All right, last topic. DHS Cyber Safety Board, which did one Log4j report, basically an accident report on what happened, has announced it's now going to look at the lapsus hacks. At least I was surprised. It's a little bit controversial. Everybody's heard about the lapsus hacks because these are what we believe to be a bunch of teenagers who broke into Uber and Samsung and NVIDIA and Ubisoft and got a bunch of deeply embarrassing stuff. And people are saying, well, maybe that's not the right place to look. I think actually it probably is because those are companies that ought to have really good security. And if they got taken down with social engineering, it may mean that we should be thinking harder about what our social engineering defenses are than we do. And that is the last of our stories. Mark, Jamil, Nick, thanks for joining us. To the audience, if you've got questions or comments or feedback, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I read all those. Uh, I shouldn't say that because now we'll get endless abuse. I also read the reviews. So if you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you uh, get your podcasts. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 433 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Come <laughs> on.